But beloved, if you are new to ARC, you know that we have been trying to actually learn to do a lot of what we just heard there. Um, and we have been working to organize ourselves into five PSA teams, Pray, Study, Act teams, um, that focus on things like food security, uh, home ownership, uh, focus on the, the sort of well-being of the community, mental health, health, those kinds of issues, family formation. Um, and as I listen to our sister talk, uh, I'm thinking so much for us not just to partner with and give to, but so much for us to learn uh, from our sisters. And so uh, let's go together. Let's go together in prayer. Pray for Martha's table. Pray for our community. Pray for us as a church so the Lord would help us in all of these ways. Let's, let's pray now. Father, we give you thanks that you have not left yourself without a witness. That you have been revealing your goodness and your mercy and your love in the world. And not just through your church when she gathers and does churchy things, but also, O oh Lord, in the work of people made in your image, whether or not they are Christians who, who because they're made in your image, have compassion. Look to, Lord, love neighbor. And thank you, Lord, that even in organizations that are self-described as secular, you, you have your people, even in those organizations, bearing witness, being light. We give you praise for Martha's table. We give you praise for the work that you have been leading them through over these 40 years, and most especially in these last three years or so, as they have sought to be um, trusted and truthful partners with the community. As they have sought to put themselves in the position of, of humble learners, O oh Lord, and to take themselves out of the driver's seat so that they might, Lord, be led by the community that they wish to serve, our community. We pray that, that kind of humility would mark us as a church, that we would, Lord, uh, be acceptable outsiders until we are in a fuller sense uh, insiders. Lord, we pray that you would root us in the community and root Martha's Table and other organizations like it, the Ark and our brother Rasan and the work that's done here. Lord, we thank you for these valiant servants who give themselves selflessly day in and day out uh, to care for the real needs of, of our neighbors, our needs. We pray that you would make that fruitful in every way. We pray, O oh Lord, that people would go from economic stability to economic mobility. We pray that the early education of our children would be effective and high quality so that children indeed are arriving at school, Lord, equipped and ready to learn. We pray for reform in our schools, Lord, that would meet our children in appropriate and effective ways. We pray that you would bless our community, Lord, particularly the young people in our community transitioning from, from youth and teen years into adulthood. What a, what a confusing and trouble-laden time are, is those years. Give grace, O oh Lord, to parents shepherding young people. Give grace to young people, O oh Lord, making life decisions. Give grace to us all that we might, Lord, care for for people in that transition, young men, young women coming into adulthood. Lord, we pray for the members of our community who are returning citizens. We pray for the seasoned citizens of our community. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would supply to everyone according to their need. Give grace to each and all. Use your church, O oh Lord. Use your church, whether we are scattered individually to serve or whether we are gathered to collectively as your people. Use us, O oh Lord, to serve and to bless our community. Do this for your glory. Do this for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, beloved, turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. And as you turn there, let me sort of introduce this by keying in providentially on a phrase that our sister Tiffany used repeatedly in her discussion. Did you hear oftentimes say, stand with the community? 
how often that language of standing with, coming alongside, was shaping her discussion of the mission of Martha's Table. Now, a word that we could also use for that idea is the word solidarity. And when we come to Esther chapter 7, it is that very idea that, that zooms to the fore in the action here, this, this idea of solidarity. And, and we're going to see it most clearly embodied in Esther as she continues her work to intercede on behalf of our people, the Jews. Now, if you've not been with us these several weeks, let me try to give you a, a quick sort of summary of, of where we are in this book. In Esther chapter 1, it opens with the king, Ahasuerus, also named, named Xerxes. He's king of the Persian Empire. He's throwing a six-month-long party to celebrate himself. And while he is doing that, he decides in a, in a drunken sort of party to call his wife Vashti, basically to come parade herself for her drunken for his drunken companions. Vashti had enough dignity that she would not submit herself to that kind of objectification. So she said, no. King got mad. He listened to his boys. His boys said, you got to get rid of her. Because if the wives in the land hear that the queen didn't respond to her husband, all the other wives in the land are going to act the same way. And we can't have that. And so the good old boys passed laws to systematically oppress women. We come to chapter two, and he has gotten rid of Vashti, decides he needs another queen. It's four years later. He has a beauty contest. So he's not done objectifying women. He gathers up all the text says, young, beautiful virgins in the land, brings them into his harem, and one by one begins to try them out. And so now we've gone from objectification to a kind of scene of rape culture. And he's exploiting these young women in order to choose himself a wife. And in God's providence, he lands on Esther, and Esther becomes queen. Then we get in chapter 3 a scene where Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who has raised her since she was a child because her parents has died, he is sitting in the king's gate. He's an official in the king's court. He gets wind of the fact that there are a couple other officials who are going to try to assassinate the king. And so he intercedes. He gets a message to Esther, tells Esther to tell the king, she tells the king, in the name of Mordecai, they investigate and discover that, in fact, that plot was happening, and they put to death those folks who were plotting to kill the king. But Mordecai was not rewarded. In the very next scene, a man named Haman comes into play. And Haman is an Agagite, an Amalekite. He's a member of a people who are the ancient enemies of Israel. And he, he gets the king to pass a law that everybody needs to bow whenever he walks into the room. Everybody does it except one man, Mordecai. Uh, they, he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew. That excites all the old anger and hatred and ethnic conflict uh, that has existed between these two people groups for centuries. And he gets the king to pass a law that on a certain day, all the Jews at once would be put to death. From India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. So now Esther is telling us about systematic racial injustice and oppression. Mordecai mourns, tears his clothes, goes to the king's gate, is crying out. Esther's like, what's wrong with you? Get him some clean clothes. He refuses to put them on. He tells Esther, basically, you've got to go to the king for us. Esther says, nobody goes to the king unless the king has summoned them. He hasn't called for me in over a month. And, and Mordecai's like, look, all the Jews are about to be killed, and you don't need to think that you're going to escape just because you're in the king's household. And oh, by the way, if you don't act, God can raise up deliverance from some other place. So he challenges her to go to the king. So she does. She seems to have a little plan. Three days, they fast. On the third day, she goes to the king. When she goes to the king, she doesn't quite shoot her shot. She's patient. She's going to run her offense. So she invites them to a feast. Day one, they have the feast. She invites the king and Haman. They feast and drink and get merry. And the king is like, what you want? She's like, you know what? If I found favor in your sight, come again tomorrow. I'll prepare another feast, and then I will tell you. Meanwhile, the king has remembered that Mordecai saved his life. 
And the king has decided he needs to honor Mordecai, that he has left that undone for about five years now. Haman has come to the king's house to get permission to kill Mordecai. The king asked Haman, what shall I do for the man that I wish to honor? Haman, thinking that the king is talking about him, is like, let me see. Let him wear the king's robes and let him ride a horse that the king has ridden and put a crown on his head and then choose an official that you respect to lead that man through the town saying, thus, this is the way that the king honors those that he wishes to honor. And he's smiling like he's going to get a pudding pop, right? And the king said, bet. Do that for Mordecai. So now Haman, who has come to kill Mordecai, is put to shame. He's got to lead Mordecai through the city saying, this is how the king treats people he wishes to honor. He goes home, sad, mad, busted, disgusted. And while he is whining to his wife and his friends, the end of chapter six says that the eunuchs arrived, the king's servants arrived and ushered him to the second feast now with Esther and the king. And this is where we pick up Esther chapter seven, beginning in verse one. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Beloved, I want us to consider two points from Esther 7 this morning. Number one, justice requires solidarity with the oppressed. Justice requires solidarity with the oppressed in verses 1 to 6. We'll spend the bulk of our time there, so don't panic. Number two, justice requires punishing the oppressor. Justice requires punishing the oppressor. We'll see that in verses seven to 10. Let's think about this first point, justice and solidarity. As we said, at the end of chapter six, Haman is put to shame and he's complaining with his family when the king's servants rush in to gather him to take him to the feast with Esther. That's what we get for context in verses one and two. In verse two, the king now renews his questions to Esther. I've not noticed this before, but the king actually asked two questions. He asked, number one, what is your wish? That seems to be about Esther's personal desire. Seems to be about a, a want rather than a need. And then he asked, what is your request? Which seems to be about Esther's needs. What, what brought her to him in the first place? 
So imagine taking someone to the mall and saying, someone you love saying, we came here for something that you need, but while you're here, get anything you want, up to half the mall. All the folks whose wives are chuckling in trouble. There's a difference between want and need, isn't there? But the king is prepared to satisfy both. And that's what he says to Esther. And it's in this context that Queen Esther begins to give us a, a moving picture of what solidarity with the oppressed really looks like, what solidarity with the suffering in the midst of injustice really looks like. And we learn three things about solidarity. Number one, solidarity considers the oppressed. It considers the oppressed. Look with me in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. So for her wish now, the thing that, that she's asking for is that her own life be spared. But that's the smaller thing. For her request, for her need, what she asked for is that her people's lives be spared. Now, Queen Esther could have answered the king's questions in an entirely selfish way. She could have thought only of herself and forgotten about her Jewish people. You remember in chapter 2 or chapter 3, when she was selected to be queen, her cousin Mordecai told her, don't tell nobody who you are. So she has been for up to this time, almost 10 years now, passing as Persian. But now she's considering her people. And she's considering their needs. She thinks not only about herself, she thinks about herself and the Jewish people. She considered the danger that Jews were in because of the hatred of Haman and the systemic injustice that had been formed by law. When it came time to use her voice, her position, and her privilege as queen, she spoke up for the oppressed. She did exactly what Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 says what it teaches kings to do, when it says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 31 gives us that, that biblical responsibility for kings and those in authority. And, and since Proverbs 31 is wisdom literature, it's also a responsibility for all of God's people. Esther now fulfills that responsibility on behalf of the voiceless, the destitute, the poor Jews who are about to have their lives snuffed out. Esther's given us a beautiful example of the courage and the selflessness of Philippians 2, 3 and 4. You remember what Paul says there? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what solidarity does. That's what Esther does here. That's what ought to be an ordinary part of the Christian life. Looking out not only for ourselves, our wishes, but also for others and requesting on their behalf. So Esther has given us an example of a, a deeply biblical form of solidarity that stands with the oppressed. This is the second thing we learn from Esther here, that solidarity risks suffering. That true solidarity risks suffering. I get that from verse 4. In verse 4, Queen Esther tells us why she makes her, her request and her wish. She says, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now, verse 4 is pretty crafty speech. She's already humbled herself before the king in verse 3 by saying, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. Now in verse 4, she keeps buttering that role. She states things in a way that does not accuse the king. She says, we have been sold. She doesn't say, you have passed the law. She puts the situation in terms of a secret transaction rather than the king's action. She's leaving him room to think about things without the pressure of accusation. 
And she says, our affliction is not to be compared with the king's loss. Now, you remember when Haman got him to pass this law, he had appeared, he had appealed to the king's prophet. Esther now is making a similar appeal in the opposite direction. She's saying, if these people had been destroyed or being destroyed, it's going to be your loss. Even if they had remained to be slaves, they would have had life and they would have been some profit to you. There's no profit from you destroying your own citizens. But notice now, more important than the crafty speech here is the clear speech that expresses solidarity. Notice the pronoun she uses. She says, we have been sold. She says, in case that's not clear, I and my people have been sold. She said, if we had been sold merely as slaves, she says, our affliction. She no longer presents herself as an individual without connection to a people group. She's no longer trying to just pass and assimilate in Persian society. For the first time in the entire book, Queen Esther publicly identifies herself as Jewish. She does so in a way that not only clarifies her Jewish identity, but also joins her fate with the fate of her people. See, solidarity risks suffering with the oppressed. There's some people who want to practice solidarity without taking any risks. But solidarity is a deep form of empathy, beloved. It is entering into a situation with someone. So there's no way to practice true biblical solidarity like we see with Esther without also entering into the afflictions of the people we're standing with, without sharing their suffering. If we refuse to suffer with others, then, beloved, we won't show up when it it matters most. We won't show up where where it matters most. And this is why so many who say they want to stand with the oppressed actually wind up sitting with the oppressor. They don't want to risk any hurt or loss or even inconvenience. But risk on behalf of the marginalized and the mistreated Jews in Esther time is all over this book. In Esther 4, Mordecai risked his life by putting on sackcloth and going to the king's gate to protest, even though that was illegal. In Esther 5, Queen Esther risked her life by appearing before the king, even though she wasn't requested an audience. Now she's risking her life by declaring herself to be Jewish, a people with whom already there is a death sentence hanging over their heads because of that unjust law. All of these risks were necessary acts if she was truly going to stand with her people in their hour of need. Solidarity shares in the suffering of the marginalized and the oppressed. It takes risks on their behalf. Number three, solidarity confronts oppressors. It confronts. Look there in verses five to six. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy. This wicked Haman, Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I I love the king's response in verse 5. It's the first time he acts like a real husband in the whole book. Now, don't don't get me wrong. He's still a jerk. But at this point, he, like most brothers, I love his response. Like, who it is? Where he at? He get all swole. You know, he he get big chested about this thing. I, I wish he would. Right? Everything, I had to leave some words out. Y'all know what we said. Everything Esther has done in her approach has been to win this reaction, to bring the king to this point. Everything she has done was designed to shift his concern from Haman over to herself and her people, and it worked. That's, that's when Esther confronts Haman. She doesn't mince words. She says, and a foe and an enemy. In case you didn't know what a foe was, it's an enemy. She says it two different ways. And she says, this wicked Haman. So solidarity takes sides. It takes the side of the weak and the vulnerable by naming the strong and the wicked. 
Solidarity does not leave the enemy unnamed. It doesn't leave room for anonymity. It points out the foe and describes its character. Wicked. It confronts. That was the point of our earlier Bible reading. When Nathan confronts David, he points out his wickedness. He points out his sin. He helps him to see that he's wrong. And Esther here is pointing out Haman's wickedness. Think of how totally ineffective Queen Esther would have been had she not named Haman. If she had started talking about some people or started using vagaries and generalities, there would have been no accountability for Haman. He would have had a way of escape, but she has, she has gotten Haman at her dining table. She has gotten him in a small audience with the queen. She has gotten him in the crosshairs. Now she squeezes the trigger. She points him out. This wicked man right here. And that kind of confrontation in the right place at the right time is the only way that solidarity works in defense of the oppressed. We not only have to speak up, beloved, sometimes we have to speak at. We got to name names. Winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and survivor of the Nazi Holocaust, Eli Wiesel, said in his acceptance speech for the Peace Prize this. Just bear with me as a, I'm going to quote this paragraph. Listen to what he says. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Whenever men or women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place at that moment becomes the center of the universe. Think about his credibility as a Holocaust survivor. All the way from the Jewish Esther down to the Jewish Eli Wiesel. They understood the necessity of solidarity, the kind that stands up and speaks at, that confronts. This is what solidarity is, considering others, entering into risk with them, and speaking up with them to confront. In this chapter, Queen Esther emerges this is really as a type of Christ. When I say type of Christ, I mean a person in the Old Testament who, like a commercial of things to come, gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. The Old Testament is full of these types. You got Joseph in Genesis, King David in Samuel, Zerubbabel in the prophets. Here it is Esther in her acts of solidarity. Think, think about how Jesus acts in solidarity with sinners. First of all, Jesus leaves his royal position seated at the right hand of God the Father. He takes on himself human flesh. How much more solidarity can there be than that? He takes on himself human flesh and likeness. And in taking on our flesh, he is identifying with us in our weakness. Why did the Lord do it? Well, wasn't it because the danger we were in because of our sin? But Jesus took not only our flesh, our identity, but also suffered in our place for our sin. He not only risked, he actually suffered. Esther decided to share the Jews' faith, but Jesus did more than share our faith. He took it all on himself when he died for our sins on the cross. The wrath of God was totally poured out on him so that we would not have to suffer God's judgment. No greater solidarity with sinners could ever have been achieved. And did not Jesus, in solidarity with sinners, confront and defeat our enemies? He conquered the devil, the one that Hebrews 2 says had power of death and kept us in the fear of death. He not only conquered the devil, he conquered death itself. 
by rising from the grave three days later, robbing the grave of its victims, robbing the grave of all those who slept there until the Son of God came and atoned for our sins. And now everyone who confesses their sins and put their faith in Jesus is forgiven of their sins, declared righteous in God's sight, and shares in the resurrection and the eternal life that Jesus promises us. More than that now, we have our identities changed. We become creatures united to God through faith in Christ and so experience the other side of solidarity. We enter into his life. His life enters into us. We go from children of the devil being sons to being sons and daughters of God. Jesus came in solidarity with us so that our identity would be one with God. Jesus provides that ultimate solidarity. And we are called to return it by repenting of our sins, confessing them to God, and putting our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet done that, oh man, how much more can God stand with you than to give his son on the cross for your sins and to raise him from the grave three days later for your eternal life? And if God stands with you in that way, in it entirely right and good and reasonable and beautiful that you should stand with God by repenting and believing. So Christ then becomes, and Esther becomes a pointer to Christ, who is this ultimate solidarity with sinners. Now, once we come to Christ by faith, we are meant to live lives that, that take up for the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. As Christians, we should be demonstrating this same kind of solidarity with the marginalized and the mistreated. But this is, beloved, a complex application. This is not always an easy, straight-line kind of thing, especially for religious and ethnic minorities in a foreign country. So let me take my time here. Let's lean into this a little bit because I need us to understand. I think God wants us to understand what it is, what solidarity is and how we practice it and to understand something about the complexity of it. When Esther says, I and my people, she takes sides with her people instead of taking sides with the king or the empire. She's declaring her loyalty to the Jews over every other loyalty except loyalty to God. That has political implications. Israel was a nation within a nation. Sometimes the welfare of Israel was tied to the welfare of the nation, of, of Babylon or Persia. You remember in Jeremiah 29? where Jeremiah says to seek the welfare, of the welfare of the city because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So sometimes as an exiled people, their well-being was connected to the well-being of the people who had conquered them. But at other times, their well-being was actually tied to resisting, resisting the power and the influence of their captors because complying with their captors would mean their destruction. So solidarity with the marginalized Israel could either mean A, working for the welfare of the state, or B, confronting the actions of the state. Sometimes solidarity means openly protesting, like Mordecai at the king's gate in those sackcloth and ashes. And other times it means using the access and privileges of the state the way Esther used it in appealing to the king. Marginalized and oppressed people have a complex relationship with the powers that oppress them. Political implications can spin out in multiple directions. This is why simplistic answers never work. They never satisfy for every situation. Sometimes our welfare comes through cooperation. Sometimes our welfare comes through confrontation, but never through co-optation. Never comes by being co-opted. It's complex. And while exile people are swimming in this complexity, dominant groups 
often try to reduce everything to simplistic answers. Here's what the dominant culture often says to the exile. Forget about your identity. Focus on assimilating. Become one of us. If you just play by our rules, you'll be okay. Those other problems are not really your problems. You're one of the good ones, or you can be. You ever notice that all of this, almost all of the incentives of the dominant society emphasize assimilation? Here's what the dominant society does not or refuses to understand. If Esther assimilated, then Israel would be annihilated. It is group self-destruction. When people who are exiles forget their own exile community and their identity and assimilate entirely with the dominant community and adopts their interests. Dominant groups, especially those who are hungry and lustful for power, they really refuse to acknowledge that exiled and oppressed groups experience an interconnectedness, a mutual dependence that, that, that is necessary for survival. Esther has what W.B. Du Bois would later famously call double consciousness. That was Across chapters three to seven, Esther has grown more fully into that double consciousness. She's become aware of her two-ness, that she is simultaneously queen of the Persian empire and conquered Jewish woman. Sometimes, like in Esther four, verses 13 to 14, she has to choose between the two. As Du Bois pointed out, this is the strange existence of African-Americans. We are simultaneously American and other. Even inside the broader church, we are simultaneously American and Christian and other. We simultaneously love and work for the betterment of our country and at the same time receive rejection and mistreatment from the hands of our country. This is why our poets say, I too sing America. I'm the darker brother. I want us to understand that this kind of double consciousness is true with any exile group. Christians submitting to their governments experience it. Latin Americans and Haitians immigrating to the U.S. experience it. Afghan refugees fleeing persecution in their homeland experience it. African Americans looking for justice from the criminal injustice system experience it. This double consciousness is an ordinary and complex part of being an exiled people, whether we are exiled religiously or ethnically. Let me lean on that last phrase, whether religiously or ethnically. Religious persecution and ethnic persecution can sometimes travel together. But at other times, they are different. That's why it's a mistake to just make Esther a story about God's covenant people when there are also ethnic, racial, and gender things happening in this text. So sometimes they travel together, but at other times they can be different. And that's why Christian conversations about racial injustice need to slow down. It's more complex than Twitter could ever make it. Sometimes majority Christians say to minority Christians that the only thing that matters is being Christian. They're calling for a kind of religious assimilation. And a, and a, religious, a, a religious assimilation that seems unaware of kind of various identities. However, the minority Christian knows full well when they are persecuted because of their faith, and when they are being persecuted because of their ethnicity. The, the minority Christian knows full well that to ignore their ethnic persecution would be to comply with their destruction. But we, we don't escape this double consciousness, this double reality, because we are now Christians. We understand that the foundation for solidarity must be the place where oppression and mistreatment are actually experienced. That's what Eli Wilson was saying whether it is race or religion or national origin or gender, when that becomes the site of mistreatment, it also must become the site of solidarity. So if it is 
experience religiously, then we express solidarity religiously. If people persecute the church, then we identify with the church and we respond in solidarity to their persecution. If it is experienced based on gender, then we must express solidarity with the gender that is being persecuted in this text with the way women have been mistreated throughout this book. If it is experienced racially, then we must stand with the racial group being mistreated, whether it is African-Americans suffering or Asian-Americans and the rise of anti-Asian hate or Latin Americans and Haitians suffering various things at the border. We must stand with the group who is being mistreated. Solidarity is not fundamentally a religious project. It is more fundamentally a human in the image of God project. This is why it's complex. And we need more than a soundbite understanding of how to stand with one another in the face of injustice. This is why people watching the various trials over this last week experienced some mixture of both hope and I knew it. It is the echo of this two-ness, this double consciousness. And beloved, this is why we need to be thankful and we need to be kind to people who are crossing borders to express solidarity. Let's just make that real concrete. It is likely the case that in a conversation like this, Many of our white brothers and sisters who are members of our family here are experiencing this too, this in a different direction. And they have been trying to enter into mission with us in this community. And they've been trying to understand the issues and to give themselves to the issue. The response to that is not impatience and self-righteousness. The response to that is not a happy trigger finger that looks to condemn and to rebuke anytime somebody makes a mistake. These are folks expressing solidarity. The response to that is love. Glad you're with us. The response to that is patience, the same kind of patience that God shows us. So solidarity is that kind of empathy that is meant to be returned when it's expressed. Esther teaches us to consider, to risk, and to confront. And that brings us to the second point. Justice begins with punishing the oppressor. It requires punishing the oppressor. At the end of verse 6, Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. I like that. The text adds, and the queen. See, earlier, Esther was just a name drop to Haman. Now his life is in her hands. There's been a complete role reversal. And when all this came to light, the king. The king got hot. King got angry. Verse 7 says, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The the king was trying to figure out what to do. Verse verse 7 tells us that the the whole situation had killed his buzz, right? (laughs) He'd been drinking and partying. He's like, I'm trying to ask my wife what nice thing I can do for her. And she done dropped in my lap. Somebody trying to kill her. And then she done pointed to my right hand, man. You know what? I'm going to go outside and count to 10. I'm going to go out to the guard. I'm going to get myself right. Because, you know, right now I'm about to chop her brother in the neck, right? So that, that's, that's the king. Now notice. You just found out that your right-hand man is trying to kill your queen and your people. You like this queen. You and he have been feasting at her table for two days. You were drinking and having a good time. Now you're angry and trying to cool down. You're trying to figure out what to say or what to do. As soon as you walk back into the room, it looks like he's attacking her on the couch. Imagine the king's response. You got a picture here. And you got to picture him black, I think. He walked back in the room, see Haman on the couch. Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? It would have been one thing if there was some misunderstanding out there in the street. But this brother in my house, 
on my couch looking like he's jumping on my woman. It's going to be problems. It's going to be problems, man. Verse 8 says, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. I mean, the goon squad quick. They snatched him up with the quickness, put a hood on that rascal. Verse 9, Harbona, the eunuch. <laughs> you know how people start ratting you out when, when, <laughs> when the gig is up. You know, verse 9, look at the eunuch. He, he all too ready to tell the king. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Mo Haman's house 50 cubits high. Now in verse 10, you have to imagine the king as a black woman. You're like, hang him on that. <laughs> hang him on that. And that's precisely what they did. Because everybody listens to a black woman when they mad. The guilty was punished for their crimes and sins against the king and his queen. Justice begins with punishing the oppressor. Verses 7 to 10, though, show us really what the beginning of justice involves. This is just the beginning. It involves holding accountable and punishing those who do wrong. Haman gets what he deserves. But notice now, punishing the guilty, the individuals, is only the beginning of justice in the case of systematic injustice. Remember now, there are laws in place in Esther's time that would still result in the unjust execution of all Jews. Those laws have effect whether or not Haman is alive. Haman could still win even in death unless those laws are changed. And that's why chapter 8, which we'll consider next week, Lord willing, turns its attention to those laws. But chapter 7 deals with the head of the snake. It would not be justice, if, even if the laws were changed and Haman got away. Just as it wouldn't be justice to deal with Haman and leave the laws unchanged. Both are needed. There can be no complete and true earthly justice until the guilty receive their judgment. And this is why I think rational people are bothered with the Rittenhouse decision. Oh, we understand that there are laws on the books that have tremendous loopholes you can drive trucks through. And we understand that according to some earthly fallen judge, rules can be set that actually sort of govern the deliberation. And we understand that in that sense, somebody might say the justice system worked and reached an outcome. But every legal verdict is not a moral verdict. And every legal verdict, according to process, is not a just verdict, according to process. And this is why some of us mourn what we have been seeing this past week. Even today in this country, and the injustices and the lack of accountability and the recognition that laws are a part of the problem, not just individuals. We should end with hope. Esther 7 begins with the mention of the king's wrath. Did you see that? He is angry, righteously so. His wrath drives him to consider how to judge Haman. And while he's working out his wrath, again, Haman continues to offend him, continues to sin against him. The whole thing is really a picture of what it's like between God and unrepentant sinners. God's wrath is being revealed against man for sin, according to Romans chapter 1. But sinful man continues in rebellion against God, and God's wrath burns until it's satisfied. In verse 10, notice the king's wrath is abated. It's satisfied. It's turned away only when Haman is punished. And God's wrath is against sin. It's only abated. It's only satisfied. To use the fancy theological word, it's only propitiated when that wrath is satisfied. Now, there's good news and bad news, beloved. The bad news is that if we die in our sin, continuing to offend a holy God, 
then we, like Haman, must personally pay the price of God's justice. That's eternal condemnation in hell. But if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, then God's wrath is abated. It's turned away. It is satisfied, not by our judgment, but by the judgment that Jesus took on the cross in our place. That's good news. For we who believe are then free from God's judgment and free from God's wrath forever. If you are in Christ, God is no longer angry with you. God will never be angry with you because all of his anger was satisfied in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are free from the worry of God's judgment because his judgment has been satisfied. This is why we sing not guilty. This is why those words are, are so poignant and so moving to us. Look in the, in the bulletin again. Find that, find that song and the lyrics to that song on page six. The songwriter imagines standing before God. My fate is in the judge's hands. But then he turns and says to me, because of Jesus, I know you. I love you. I gave my life to save you. Love paid the price for mercy. My verdict, not guilty. This is our song, beloved, if we are in Christ. This can be your song if you would turn to Jesus, put your faith in him, ask God for his forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, and live for Jesus through faith. The greatest solidarity in the world is God giving his son for our salvation. And with that solidarity, we overcome the world. Every injustice, every imperfection, every sin. Because on that great and final day, God will make everything right. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we do. We give you our hallelujahs. We give you our praise, for you are faithful and great. You are just and mighty. You are true and righteousness. You do justice every day. And we know, O oh Lord, that no Haman will escape. And every Esther, every Mordecai, every Jew by faith, everyone who trusts in Christ will be saved. We pray, O oh Lord, do your perfect justice. Do your work in the world. Do your work through us and help us to be those who stand with people on the margin, people mistreated, people left out, people left behind. Help us to do that because that's what you have done for us. We pray this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.